Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck tuckians? What the fuck Ricans? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. I am broadcasting today from a hotel room in uh, the amazing metropolis that is New York City. I love New York City. I love being here for about three days. Uh, come the fourth day, I'm exhausted. My feet hurt. And uh, I'm I'm paralyzed with how limited my life remains, even in a huge city. I come back to the same few blocks that I'm familiar with, and I walk around them. I walk across the island to uh, you know mostly downtown, and I eat at the same places twice. I I, I get awfully hard on myself uh, about not branching out more, but I did a little bit. But look, let's uh, let let's talk about other things first. Uh, today on the show, I have a uh, veteran journalist, Leslie Stahl, to talk about the, the sort of arc of time in her career that's happened uh, since she started and being involved in the Watergate investigations and, and you know, on through interviewing and being a grandmother and whatnot. Uh, I had the opportunity to talk to her. She's an interviewer. I'm an interviewer. Why not interview her? Right. Also. Dimitri Martin stopped by, and, and we had a great great conversation, uh, just a little talk with me and Dimitri uh, about his, uh, his new movie, uh, Dean, which is now playing. He's in it. He wrote it. He directed it. And, and Dimitri and I have always known each other, but I'm not sure. I, I think that our relationship has evolved over time, and this, this time that you'll hear right now that we talked, I, I really felt uh, for the first time a sort of kindred spirit with the dude. And I've known him, I feel like, since we were kids or since he was a kid, since he started and... He started a little after me, but I was always a little judgmental, as some of you know. I'm I'm want to do on occasion, but generally I move through it. Oh my God! I think there's somebody half naked walking on the roof across the way. Oh, is that? Is she? What's happening? Okay, all right. Now she has pants on. All right, New York City, folks. New York City. I'm high enough to see rooftops. Dimitri will be here, and that woman is now going back into her penthouse apartment. So what have I been up to? Last week's shows were both pre-recorded before I left for a press junket in London, England. And now uh, London, England is back in the news, and uh, it's horrible. And my heart goes out to the people that uh, lost people and also to the people of the U.K. in, in, in a general way. There's a lot going on there, uh, terrorism-wise and politically. So... 
So it's a tough time over there. And I was there for three days. I was there in between these two horrible events. And uh, heading there, I was nervous and scared. But when I got there, I was uh, astounded at uh, the sort of continuity of civil life that was going on. England's a, a, a beautiful place. London's a beautiful city. And, and just last week, last Wednesday, I was standing uh, on one bridge in front of the Tate Gallery, which is the one place I, I make sure I go when I'm in England. And I was looking at that London Bridge, you know, wondering if I should get over there because it's sort of an astounding, uh, beautiful uh, piece of architecture and engineering that's uh, been around a long time. And now it's uh, a place where something awful has happened again in England. And, and, uh, and I'm terribly sorry to hear that. But uh, but being in, in London, it was a, a pretty amazing thing for the three days I was there. And uh, I was happy to see that for the most part, uh, people are, are seem to be... Uh, Continuing life in the face of terror, uh, as we all are to some degree in different forms or another. But uh, I am in New York. I came to New York after London. My body clock is completely dysfunctional. It has no idea what time it is, what day it is, what time of day it is. But it's starting to level off. Uh, as some of you know, I came here to um, to promote the uh, new book, waiting for the punch we were here at book expo and book con i on friday last friday i was to host a a a one-on-one conversation for a a live audience with senator al franken some of you listened to my uh uh, my podcast i did with al franken well i did it again live and it was uh it was great it was a great time great experience it's nice that al feels a little wiggle room in the funny area these days he's He's feeling a little more uh, able to be funny. He's a little more grounded as a senator. He's doing uh, great stuff, fighting the good fight in the uh, in the context of the U.S. government. And uh, he's got great stories, and that event went uh, beautifully. It was interesting. Before Al and I got on stage, we were back in the uh, green room, and I got Al talking about the Grateful Dead, just hanging out. We're talking about our concert experiences, about uh, the new Grateful Dead documentary that's uh, – that's a little longer than an actual Grateful Dead concert coming in somewhere around four hours. But if you're uh, at all prone to the dead, if you have any of that machinery in your head that locks in with the Grateful Dead, uh, that that movie is definitely uh, worth seeing. And uh, it's always fun to get Al, uh, Senator Franken, uh, all lit up about the Grateful Dead because he'll uh, he'll just go on about it. And uh, it, it's definitely a place where he's not thinking about politics and he's not thinking about what he's saying and he's just uh, excited about the music and we did a little of that before we got onto the stage and we got onto the stage and it was great it, it it's great to work with a guy on stage who knows how to be funny in a very specific way is completely confident in that and it, it you know outside of him being a senator you know, I always loved him as a comedian and a comic mind and to sit on stage with him and, and just give him the space to work you know, as he's improvising uh, was uh, was a real treat, folks. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's a it was a real treat. And the, the event that uh, Brendan McDonald and myself did, we had a several hundred people there got their free books and Brendan just drove the show, set it up, gave me context, let me babble. And then, you know, pulled it around, did a little Q&A. It was great. It was great. We're actually a pretty good comedy team. He's, uh, he's really my, uh, my best straight man, Brendan, and no one knows me better than that guy. So, uh, so that, was, that was fun. Got some, uh, got some good laughs. Got, some, you know, got to talk about the book and about the show. You can definitely get a link over at WTFPod.com to pre-order Waiting for the Punch. 
go do that. We gave away about 800 books the other day and people, and then you know, there was a signing, got to meet some of you, a lot of different types of people coming up, people traveling, people coming from Newfoundland, from Ireland, from Syracuse, from New Jersey, from Florida, coming up. Some kids coming up, two uh, high school students with their mothers with questions about podcasting, how to start a podcast, what effect their podcast is having on their high school community. Some people who are new to recovery thanking me, telling me they're they're doing it. Uh, some people just love the show, families, people getting books for their boyfriends or girlfriends or kids. It was uh, It's humbling and exciting, the, uh, the reach of this show. And God damn it, I appreciate it. I, I appreciate it in this world that it seems to be coming unraveled at the seams. I appreciate it. I appreciate that this means something. So I'm sitting in New York. You know, I got Sarah with me and, you know, we're doing the thing and it's been busy. And uh, I always get this this urge, you know, this urge. I, I feel like I've got to go do something new. I've got to get something new into my head. I've got to go see some stuff. I'm in New York. I got to see some stuff. I always get this itch to go to Lincoln Center because years ago when I was staying at a hotel right across from Lincoln Center, by coincidence, I just walked over and saw a symphony. And I was just amazed at the you know, the, the ability to do that. So I, I always come to New York, even if I've only got a few days, and see what's going on at Lincoln Center. And I wanted to see jazz at the Lincoln Center, right? And uh, there is a Lincoln Center jazz orchestra. And uh, it's Wynton Marsalis is the manager and artistic director and they were doing something called world of monk and that would be Thelonious monk i like monk but again as some of you know i'm sort of a jazz novice i'm just starting to really you know listen to it my brain was always wired for it but now i'm really getting into it uh yeah i'm not in a nerd way not in that i know all the nuances or all the players but i like listening to the music it's it's relaxing and it takes me to a different place. It's, it's not beholden to words or hooks or, or anything. You just have to kind of kind of you just have to get in. It's like a pool, and you just got to you know get used to the water and just float in it. So we I bought some nice seats and we went up and we saw what turned out to be the last night of the world of Monk. It was spectacular, man. We were at the Rose Theater. I didn't know what to expect, but oh, there's the woman again. She's half naked and she's taking garbage out. It's all right. I'm not supposed to be looking, but I'm just looking out. It doesn't, I'm not looking now. So I, we went and I didn't know what to expect, but I just wanted to sit in a space dedicated to art, dedicated to music, listen to some jazz, have my mind blown. And it was, it was phenomenal. And it, you know, it's, and now with everything that goes on in the world, every time you enter a train, every time you go out into a public place, every time in your theater, you know, there's part of you in the, in the back of your brain if you're in a big city. It's like, is this where it happens? Is this where it ends? Is this where something horrible happens? Is this where the, 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 the terror happens? That's a real fear. It's a tangible fear, especially if you're in a big city. And then you got to transcend that. On top of everything else, you have to sit down in a space and let go of that. And the phenomenal thing, truly phenomenal thing about jazz music is that it is a fundamentally American you know, musical framework that can carry and elevate any type of improvisation from anywhere in the world. It was truly uh, uh, just an intersection 
it was just such a, an amazing testament to the creativity of the human spirit. And there were just no words, no words, except when Winton would talk in between things, just pure expression, just, you know, right to, to, to the roots of jazz, but completely integrated. What it, it was just a fucking astounding experience. And I sometimes, you know, I, I wonder about the power, you know, like does, do people have the power? Does art have the power? Does expression have the power? to fight against the, the, the sort of like brutal consolidation of, uh, of, of narrow-minded thinking. And, and it, it's like no one act does, but all acts together, all voices together, you know, even in their sporadic places, that, you know, just the elevation of, of human creativity and the human spirit to, to just continue to exist, to push through like fucking flowers, you know, on a garbage dump. It's like got a little faith because of... Uh, because of jazz, man. So now uh, we're going to go back to the garage and uh, listen in on my uh, conversation with Dimitri Martin. Uh, his new movie, Dean, is now playing. He's in it. He wrote it. He directed it. And uh, this was the, really the best conversation I, I've ever had with the fella. And I've had many. And uh, I, 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 I like him. Okay? This is me. And- Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Dimitri. The truth is, and I might have talked about this years ago when I was here, and now lately I've turned every green room into therapy. I go in and I'm like, ah, I want to dig deeper, and I'm, and I'm really trying because I love one-liners. Ooh. I love jokes. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I want to talk about what I feel. I yeah. want to talk about like below the neck stuff. Yeah. It's hard. I, I, it's hard. If, it's just not, if that's not where your head goes... <laughs> It's hard to get comedy out of that. Well, if you say you turn every green room into therapy, like who are you talking to? Other comics? Or yeah, just, just other comics. It's not even, it's like comedy therapy. You know what I mean? It's not like I need like, help man. with my life. I'm like, yeah, you know, I just want to dig deeper. Yeah, I want to connect in a different way with the audience rather than, I feel like what I have to offer is, you know, my jokes, but it's not that human. There's just like a ceiling. Well, you did it in the movie. I watched, I tried. I watched the whole movie. Oh, thanks, man. I don't do that. When I, you know what's <laughs> funny? Really you know, I, no, I before do. on the way over, before I came over, I was like, oh, did they send him a screener? Because I didn't. Eat, I was saying, yes, I'm trying to promote my movie. And then I'm like, I was ambivalent. I was like, shit, I don't know if I want Mark to watch this. <laughs> Just because <laughs> we don't know each other well, but you've known me a long time. I'm yeah. like, oh boy, here we go. But like, that's all you. You know, that's yeah. interspersed with, you know, I could tell in the writing of the script that, you know, there's some of your style of writing, but also you, you put a lot of the uh, comic art in it. I did the cartooning, yeah. which, and I think that that you're able to go deep with somehow. It's true. I feel like I I feel more entitled or something, and uh-huh. it's just a few little lines. 
Yeah, it's true. I but think for me. But yeah. they're very simple too, though. They're, yeah. they're like your jokes, but they're yeah. just, you know, they seem, well, this- it's more emotional. Obviously, these cartoons in the film, which are your cartoons, are, you know, they have a theme that's not yeah. a beat yeah. per se. That's true. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, not Gahan Wilson. Who's the other guy? Gross? S. Gross? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit? Is that yeah. possible? I think so. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I'm late to the New Yorker stuff. I loved uh, Gary Larson when I was growing up. Right. It's not a big reach, but I'm from Jersey Shore, so- there That's were like right. two bookstores in my mall. Yeah. And I'd go to this one and they always had like Farside books. So I was right. like, cool. So I like that stuff. Later, all the New Yorker guys. Now I have books of Saul Steinberg and all these guys, which is great. I love that have stuff. Have you had stuff in the New Yorker? No. Why I had, not? I had like a fiction thing. The guy, oh. the uh, cartoon guy, he invited me. He emailed me years, I don't know, four years ago. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm a admirer of your work. You know, we're doing a special issue a cartoon issue and we feature new people who come come to the office I was like cool so I brought my you know some drawings yeah in. and then he just kind of gave me a lecture and rejected them and I was like okay yeah I what guess kind of lecture you got to get better at drawing you know you're not good enough at drawing and oh really you know yeah these kind of aren't funny enough and all that kind of stuff so like, right. really yeah and you know it's all subjective I mean, sure is subjective yeah. <laughs> definitely is subjective well I thought like um, how long did it take you to make the film Dean long time it took i started writing it like six years ago right five six years ago and then i stopped and i had like 50 pages and i started writing again and then took a while to get the financing and then i actually shot it and it took a while to edit it because i was just trying to save it i was just trying to not be embarrassed by it so So it took me like a i'm serious like we edited (laughs) at my house and i was just like it went from being really hopeful like cool i'm gonna make a movie to Mm -hmm. Oh shit! Like I just don't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> so, well, did you it's feel like defensive? You know. So you shot it how long ago? Like three years ago. Really? Yeah. Almost three years ago. So, the, it, years so ago. the film is not unlike the book that you're writing in the movie. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, totally. And in fact, uh, I just got my publisher to agree to let me do another book of cartoons to come uh-huh. out in the fall. Yeah. Be- because my book of stories was due. I got three extensions on that thing. It was but, due like two months ago, and I could, I just, it's not done. I'm not good enough. The book deal, oh, oh, you mean you don't think you're good enough? Yeah, the story is just, I think it's it's hard in life, but sometimes it's just the truth that some things just aren't good enough. And it's just to tell yourself, I'm not good enough. I'm just, I'm not good enough at writing fiction. Well, I, the, I think the problem there is like, the idea of it hanging over you is the worst. And also, worst. I think that if you're not, if your sole thing isn't writing fiction, like if you're not writing stories all year long, yeah. and when they give you the book deal, you're like, oh, I'm almost done. I've got enough for, you know. Right. If you have to write stories. It's, it's a nightmare. It's got to be a nightmare. And it's humbling. I like to try to multitask and, hey, I'm a writer and I'm an actor. It's If you're not doing that thing all the time, you get your ass handed to you. It's hard. I'm serious. <laughs> and I, you know what it is? I'm trying to write like, like kind of Kurt Vonnegut, like mid-century yeah. style. Sure. Like a story, like yeah. 15, 20 pages. So yeah. a couple of them, I'm like, hey, I worked it out. And yeah. It's like, you know, I got to... And then others, I'm just like, it's just not good enough. It's just not... I'm going to be well, embarrassed by it. Well, so. what's your editor say? Where's the pages? I mean... Now, I, do you even show them anything? No, I haven't shown them. <laughs> so you're just at home kicking your own ass? Yes, and then I tried... Making your wife read it over and over oh, again? Yeah, exactly. You know it. How old's like, your kid? Mike, I got two now. One's three and a half, and the other's 10 months old. Oh, so you can't lay it on them yet. No, exactly. Come here. Yeah, and I have the fear. I have the just primordial earning fear. You know, I'm afraid, man. That I, you're I, not going to make money? Yes. Yeah, I'm afraid. I never was. Well, the I last time... Was. Well, the last time I saw you, you hadn't, you know, you, you, you're very selective. Like, I was sort of impressed 
with the idea that, uh, and I realized something though, because when I, I think the last time we worked together was at Red Rocks for the oh, right. for yeah. the Oddball Fest, and you were like, "Yeah, I haven't really been doing it." It's <laughs> <laughs> all right, Steady. Yeah. It's but, true. But well, what have you been doing? Like, you did a benefit, but do what do you do? Like, you know, yeah. it seems like you're still kind of like uh, kicking around, doing yeah. all these things. But you're doing gigs. I'm doing gigs. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to do this new hour. I'm telling you, it sounds... Oh, because you're going to shoot in Seattle. I'm going to shoot in Seattle, so I'm trying to do a new hour. I have a bunch of one-liners, but I'm... I don't know if it's having kids or something, but, like, it feels... I don't want to say pointless, but yeah. I'm lost. I feel kind of lost, so... Well, that's, sometimes that's just life. Yeah, for sure. So I'm doing that. <laughs> well, isn't it funny with comedy where, like, for me, because I like jokes, and even, like you said, the drawings, yeah. for me, it's like, that's just what I wanted. That's, like, the track. Yeah. So guys like you and... I don't know, just list them off. People who are kind of more opening a vein up there. Yeah. I never didn't like that. It's just like, it just didn't, it doesn't no, connect yeah. it, for what, uh, like aesthetically, like that's what I want. And now I got to tell you, I'm older. I'm like, when you talk about doing sets to work it out. Yeah. You feel like doing it? Well, that's what I've been doing lately. Oh yeah. How's it going over? Bumpy. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I saw, I saw Louie at a meltdown like a yeah. month ago. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. The therapy thing. I saw him and, I, he came in when I was on stage. And yeah. You know when someone's older, it's like the His, senior comes it, in, you're a the, freshman. With the large Louis Waddle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The statesman Louis. Yeah, 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 yeah. Louis the statesman with his glasses on. <laughs> yeah, right. And yeah, so yeah. I come off and Louis's there, surprised. I'm like, oh, I just ate shit trying whatever. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm trying. He's like, doesn't the audience matter. doesn't care. They, yeah. I'm like, I'm a one-liner. He's like, they don't care. He's yeah. like, you got to figure it out. Just It's going to be quiet for a while. Just try it, you know? <laughs> it's going to be quiet. I mean, it has been. It's just like, <laughs> and people are kind of talking me out of it. Uh, like, Your a, jokes work. Like, what are you doing? I'm he like, has a way of saying things. It's going to be quiet for a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, because he did that. Right. Because, like, you know, he was primarily a joke, an absurdist, noise-driven joke comedian. Yeah. And at some point, he was just like, it's time to stop. Yeah, and open it up, and that's what that's what made him famous. How how has your crowd changed from this? Oh, it's good. My crowd's a very sweet crowd. They're like you know mildly disgruntled, all ages. You that's know, nice. thoughtful, intelligent, good tippers. Like it was, and it's it, fifty. You get a pretty good mix, gender wise, right? You get a lot of women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I get like all ages too. It's interesting. I have a certain demeanor, uh, you know, philosophically aggravated and you know intellectually aggravated and. Or whatever it is the hell I do. And people who know me from this know me pretty well. But it's a, it's really kind of like, uh, I usually say it's not a demographic, it's a disposition. Mm. And they feel very familiar to me and they know me. And, and if they're there for me, I kind of know them. That's cool. Yeah. And, it, you know, and I do all right in some cities. I, you know, I can sell a few tickets. So it is a different game the, than just doing the clubs. Where oh, yeah. are you playing? How's your crowd holding up? I'm decent. I'm, I have like certain cities I do well in. Right. I think Seattle's a good one for me. Yeah. You know, Boston, Chicago, New York, like kind of direct flights, I'm pretty mm -hmm. good. That's good. But then I'm, it, th it thins out pretty quickly for me. And, and I'm, I'm kind of still in theaters and then in certain markets, I'm barely, so I'm kind of more comedy club. Yeah. I like clubs for yeah, working clubs out are stuff. Good, yeah. yeah. Clubs are good. Clubs are good for everything if they're, if yeah. most of them are there to see you. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Like I, you know, if I had my way, man, if I could do like 2,500 seaters and do a couple shows. A year? Exactly. <laughs> Seriously, that'd be it. yeah. With kids now, I just want to be home, man. You know, I don't want to go anywhere. Well, I forget you even live here. Yeah, I'm like near Westwood. Very well, cool neighborhood. 
What <laughs> way out? You really? What, did you buy a house in Westwood? <laughs> Near there, yeah. Oh my God! But so, it's nice. It's like a mid-century thing. My, yeah. My wife does commercial interiors, so she like she made it nice. It's oh like, good. Yeah, she classed me up. It's nice. Oh, that's sweet. So, well, what do you what do you do? What are you just sitting there trying to write? Yeah. Doodling like, like <laughs> pretty much. So you wrote this movie like the first draft was six years ago for Dean. I th- maybe five years ago. Yeah. How old are you now? I'm gonna be 44 next month. Right. So, like, it, did it feel when he finally got around to doing it that this is like, this guy's 35 in the movie? Oh, yeah. I was like, <laughs> fuck, man. I, sh- I sold a, my first script that I, I sold a pitch in 2005. Of this movie? No, another, like, yeah. a concepty thing to DreamWorks. They paid me a bunch, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to write movies. <laughs> gonna, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, when the turnaround thing never got made. And then right. I sold another one to, like, Sony. Got paid, never got made. So then eventually. Full screenplays, not ideas. I sold ideas, but then I wrote the screenplay. Oh, okay. So, like, they owned it and had mm-hmm, to give me notes mm-hmm. and stuff. So, by the time this came around, I was like, I just want to try to make a movie. So, that's why it's no big concept. It's grounded, you know, emotional, whatever. But it was hard. The budget was, like, under a million bucks. It was a 20-day shoot. It was really, really hard. It was great to see uh, Kevin Klein. Yeah, he's good, right? He's great. Yeah. And and Mary Steenburgen. Yeah. They were great. You were yeah. good. I did okay. Um, you like, did. Yeah. It's, it's you know, good actors make you look better. Yeah. And you know, you did. You held your own there for a, for a bit with uh, Kevin. I I went. I you know, I went too small. Like I learned because I got to the edit. I didn't have time to watch my performance. And what the hell hard. am I going to do anyway? What's my range? What well, you mean yeah. you going to keep running back, looking at playback? It's, you know, it's and it's insulting. It's hard. I and I can't do it to Kevin Klein. Be like, What's hold on, buddy. I want to see how I did. You know. Well, the thing is, it's like it's one of those stories where you know it's a heavy story. Yeah. And and you know, like I thought you cast it well. I thought like Rory was great. Yeah, he was he was great. I love Rory. Yeah, he was great. And I thought that that woman who played the the psycho uh, ex the psycho oh, friend Briga. Briga. What's she from? She's in love too, my girlfriend said. I think she was in love again after we shot this. And now she's on, um, she has a show. She stars in the show called Good News or something like that. It's just started. Oh yeah, I just talked to uh, Michael Higgins. Yeah. Great news. That's it. Yeah. 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 Oh, good. Uh, he's a funny guy. But um, no, but like, you know, once when it started getting going, like there was a, a you know, it was heavy. And then like, I didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, and, you know, grief is 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 tricky but yeah. i thought that stuff you know between you and your dad worked out really well you know come like uh you know the third act was really you Thanks. know it was moving you know and and it was hard not to uh to get emotionally involved in that and uh and also the stuff where, <laughs> where you're just in this fragile place and that that scene with her the the last scene with um with gillian yeah with gillian <laughs> was like there's only a couple of things from my real life in that movie. So I lost my dad, actually, not my mom, uh-huh. when I was 20. He, yeah. he was 46, so he went young. Oh, my God. We yeah. were shocked. My mom was widowed at 41. It was a shock to our family. I don't think we've really recovered, to tell you the truth. It's yeah. 20. How many is in your family? You got a brother? I got a brother and a sister, yeah. and uh, That's really young. What, heart thing? Uh, no, cancer. He got oh. kidney cancer. Oh, yeah. Turns out my town in New Jersey, Tom's River. Yeah. There was like a chemical plant, then they illegally buried toxic waste like just directly in the ground in drums, like in the seventies or something. Really? So all these people died of kidney cancer. Really? Yeah. My girlfriend in high school, her dad died of at thirty nine of the same cancer. And then we had these neighbors, they bred Labrador retrievers. Like seven of their dogs died of kidney cancer from just drinking the water. And was there a so, class action suit? Was there anything I, I think there was. Actually I was in the Barnes and Noble on the on the promenade. I don't know, two years ago, yeah. I saw a book like in the health section or something. It yeah. just said Tom's River. It was my town. 
this huge book about the whole thing. And I almost bought it and I was like, I'm just going to get upset. Like, I kind of know the story. Like, you know, forget this. I don't want to. But yeah, it was like a shock to our family. It was, you don't expect that. Yeah. And then my mom got Alzheimer's. When I had my Comedy Central series, this is eight years ago or something when it first started. Yeah. She was diagnosed with early onset at 56. Jesus. So she's been four years now of the last, I'd say four or five years. She can't talk. She doesn't know who anybody is. It's horrible. It's horrible, man. So- in a way, of course, it's like there's nothing new here. It's the first time filmmaker. Oh, here's my story, you know. Yeah. But it's fiction, and like you said, I put the drawing, so yeah. I tried to at least do something cinematic with it. Yeah, yeah. And it's not reportage. It's not my actual life. No, yeah. It's just what kind of my experience with grief, and yeah. I don't know how to do it in stand up. I got to tell you, I don't. I don't know how to. I know people do that, and they talk about that kind of stuff on stage. I don't know how to do it. I. I just don't know how to. I'm still drawn to just the jokes. You know well, I think I mean? like, well, it seems to me that like, given that, you know, how, how old were you when your father passed? 20. Yeah. I mean, like something like, you know, do you go to therapy? No, I've never gone. But because like, you know, you have sort of like your personality is pretty compartmentalized, right? Yeah. So like, you know, you're, you're obviously, you know, you've designed everything you do to manage feelings. Yeah. You know, which we all do to, you know, you seem pretty good at it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not great at it. Yeah. So you you might not (laughs) have, do you know what I mean? You might not have uh, uh, this sort of like capacity at your, at your, you know, at your fingertips, fingertips to communicate that way. I think that's true. I I also think being in my Mm forties, maybe just being around long enough, I'm 20 years into stand up about, you know, I talked to my wife about it. Who's not a comic. Right. And she tells me stuff that's interesting. She's like, you know, your haircut, it's shorter now and stuff, but it's still, for a while, I think there's literally hiding behind it. Yeah. Like half my face is kind of hidden. So I think I'm emoting and expressing and connecting with people. And she's like, you seem aloof. Like you just seem disconnected. I'm like, I feel like an open wound. She's like, what? (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's just like- That's interesting though, because you you feel that inside, but you know- It's just, there's a disconnect. Right. It's it's not kind of translating. Interesting. And even in the green rooms, when I- (laughs) When you're losing it on your openers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Have you been there? (laughs) Sure. But you know, it's just Mm -hmm. like, I feel like- I'm trying to make an effort to talk to people more. I, I often just show up at the set. I look at my little notebook, say mm-hmm. hi or whatever, and yeah. then I do my set. And it's like I realize, oh, suddenly I'm not the young comic. Yeah. Like everybody's <laughs> yeah. younger than me in a lot of these yeah, rooms. Yeah, and it's yeah. like then I'm a dick because yeah. yeah. I didn't talk to somebody. Right. You know? So right. you're like, oh, shit, like yeah. make an effort. Talk to people. Yeah. Make you know? an effort, tell them how frustrated you are. Tell them, tell them how lost you are. Or <laughs> <laughs> me. <laughs> My canceled Comedy Central show. Oh, that was a long time ago. Isn't it weird? When you go to New York, like if I go to the cellar, it does feel like there are kind of ghosts there. Yeah, like now, even yeah. I feel like I've been around long enough where I'm like, wow, this has changed. Yeah, and they and changed it, the structure of it a little. Yeah, I haven't been there since they did that. Well, but. they were working on it when I was there and I'm like, uh-oh, this feels weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little, you know, it's like going, there's, there's. There are ghosts, but there's also that kind of weird New York thing where it's like, oh, he's still here? Yeah. That yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, like there's actually living ghosts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Comedians. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And the hanging out, like you can kind of kill at the table and, you know. Well, a lot of that pressure is gone. It's yeah, because Well, yeah, because Manny's gone, Patrice is gone. Geraldo. Like Geraldo's gone. Yeah, that's true. So, like, it doesn't have, it's not what it, well, I don't know. I don't go in there that much. I should go in more. I usually stop by, I never really go up. I just 
go and see who's there and hang out a little bit. And then yeah, yeah, that's a, that's sort of what I do. Like I don't yeah. rush to go do the ten minutes there, but I'm not in New York that long ever. You know, like I don't. I should go. I maybe I should go for a little longer. It's nice to do a drop in, do a little thing. Yeah. But what? Uh, so what's the plan for the movie? What happens now? So it's a platform release, right? It's a small movie. Yeah. It's like a counter-programming thing for the summer. There's like all these superhero movies and uh, and then my thing will be out there. I think there's going to be, I'm sure, plenty of indie movies through the summer. But the idea is I'm going to, I'm touring so they're, they're piggybacking some of the cities I'm in. So there'll be a screening. Like, oh, I'm gonna go, go to Boston. Yeah, I'm going to go to Boston and then I'll do stand-up one night and then the next night they'll show my movie somewhere and I'll do like a Q&A and you know, that kind of thing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I think it's a good way to do it. I think so. Like, I, I want to make more movies. I want to write my books. I, I Maybe you're similar. I tell my wife, she said this to me. I was like, I try to like diversify enough yeah. so that if I'm in trouble in one area, right. then I can kind of stand on another leg. Right. But unfortunately for me, I'm more motivated by escaping pain than kind of moving towards pleasure. You know what I mean? Maybe that's most comedians, but for me, it really is true. So I'll do stand-up. All I want to do is stand-up, and then I, I'm doing it. I'm on the road, and I'm miserable. I just want to go home. Yeah. I like being on stage, but the travel, you know, I just, I get fucking pissed. I, I hate the TSA thing. I just hate all, you know, oh, yeah. I'm TSA pre, but it's still a pain in the ass. Yeah. Then I come home, and I'm like, I'm just exhausted. I just wish I could... Just write, just have a career where I just write books in my house. And then I'm writing and I hate it. It's like homework. It's hanging over my head. I feel not good enough. And then I'm like, I wish I could just get cast in something. Yeah. Acting's like the easy money. Right. Then I get a part in something and I'm just like, I feel like a piece of meat. I yeah, have no yeah. creative control. You know, it's just a wheel of self-hatred that just rolls yeah. around, you know? Yeah. I. That, well, my relief from that is is doing this and also um, that I've like, stand-up has been more fun because I'm not... I, there's like I'm not freaking out like I don't have a kid I don't have right. a wife right 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 you know, I've paid for the house so like the financial thing is not hanging over me right. in the future so now all that's hanging over me it's like well the equation everything is set up for you to be happy how's that going <laughs> so yeah that's the worst you're at the end of the line you're just at the cliff like you made it uphill yeah, to the end. there edge. you go yeah. where's the happy time I had that once when I first moved out here it's yeah. the same exact thing we moved to Santa Monica I, I went for a really long walk in the summer yeah. all the way down through Venice. And as I came back, two things happened in the same walk. I was coming north and it was like sunset. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was perfect. And the beach was empty because it was, I don't know, yeah. late. And yeah. I remember thinking, this just like you just said, I remember thinking, I'm going to fucking die. Yeah. Because <laughs> everything was, I, I was in love. We moved out here. Yeah. I had the show at the time and it was just like, Oh my God! There's and I wasn't even. It's not like I was Spielberg, and I'm like I've right. succeeded. It's it's a hard reality when you realize that you know some of this stuff is really up to you. Yeah, for sure. It's it's um to me it's a balance. It's a struggle between I'm not working hard enough, and I should be working harder. Like why don't you just try harder? You know, and I know, I'm just like I'm. Yeah. I'm that's where I feel lost. I think is like I don't even know what I do that yeah. to myself too but but you know they're like and it, and it happens at certain times you know like that like in terms of my popularity and, and my my yeah. um my earning ability I'm I'm, I'm okay with it sure. like I, I don't really want to be any bigger and well, in you terms crossed of, over like I feel like in the, in some ways comedies like hip-hop where the people yeah it's its own community Podcasts have certainly changed the landscape, but yeah. there's some people who cross over. Like, again, when I started, you guys, 
I saw guys, I'm like, okay, he's kind of famous. To me, people were famous. Right. They were a big deal. Then I realized, oh, now they are. Like, Louis, you know, the, the easy right. example where you're like, whoa, whoa. He's like he's in like popular world culture. Fa- world famous. Yeah, I'm still not there yet. I no, still I've, hold a place. I feel like you have. A Maybe I'm bit. wrong. Well, certainly the podcast, were right. Like, it's not the comedy world. It is a different world no, next yeah, to it. Yeah, and it's all fed each other, and I have my own show and stuff. But, yeah. you know, it's on IFC, which is fine. But, like, like I've, all, I've somehow or another, and I think it's probably not a, a bad karma, that I've been able to occupy these spaces without a lot of, you know, sort of mainstream attention. Yeah. Like, you know, like people find me and they're excited. To me, that's nice because if, if you're- Yeah, if you're still discoverable, the weight isn't on And you. if you're a certain amount of known, then the people who know you overlap right. a lot with the people who like you. Right. But if you're really famous, then people who hate you- Yeah, they're- yeah, They know you. Yeah, there's just- <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Yeah, so I'm good with that, but there's still this sort of fundamental- thing where i get hard on myself like if, especially like i'm working towards a special and i'm like yeah like that joke like this this hour you know like i threw it together is it really yeah. you know is it a good out and it's like it's fine yeah you know like i i feel i i'm at a point where i'm like there's so much content if you do something right. really really excellent or really really horrendous that's your yeah. only chance of being remembered for a little while well, Everything else is gone in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> that guy did the worst thing ever. Um, no, I get that's true, you know, but this keeps me busy. I get to talk to people and, you know, and you're doing fine. I'm doing fine. But like, you know, wh- whether or not we feel okay is is really uh, 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 is acceptance. Yeah. And that's fleeting for some reason. Because like certain people like myself, like, you know, when I'm, you, you know, I, I tend to, find there's something not comfortable but certainly familiar about being hard on myself yeah right you know, it's like it's always been there and it is it, it maybe it is comfortable in as much as it's like ident it's part of identity like right, like, for yeah. me it's, it's it's as i know myself if that goes away then maybe i'm well, what, it's, it's kind of scary it is but what we, but if it goes away then maybe you can really experience it because it is a control thing yeah i mean it's very subjective right yeah, yeah. i suck <laughs> yeah right right, right right it's like you know well, the, the comic i mean the beauty of it for us is we know you do two shows in one night i yeah. mean there's the classic experience of like oh, yeah, first yeah, crowd yeah. loves you you eat shit yeah. same material i mean it's the same room it's the same conditions well, that, that a great joke you know that old joke no, i don't know about the uh you know comics you know just did you know he's out on the road and he did a couple of shows the night before and he's at the mall the next day and you know some you know hot chick comes up he's wife and she goes i saw you last night you were great and he goes what show <laughs> that's amazing it's <laughs> so true that's just that's just amazing it's so good yeah it's, good. Yeah, it's it's yeah I mean, well let's look we're doing all right your kids are healthy you got a life the movie's good people enjoy it and you yeah. know you're working on the hour you're doing the work you know yeah, happiness maybe that's you know maybe that'll come maybe it won't who the fuck knows that's right. Okay. Good talking to you. Thanks, Mark. All right. So that was, did you hear the love? Did you hear us coming together in a way we never had before? Maybe you're not as attentive to my relationship with Dimitri Martin as I am uh, when, in, when it happens, but uh, it was, it was good. I was happy to talk to him and, and go see the movie. Dean, it's now playing. Uh, around so leslie Stahl is somebody i never thought i would talk to and i was able to talk to her 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 book becoming grandma the joys and science of the new grandparenting is now available in paperback and it was a 
it was nice to talk to another person that talks to people professionally. This is me and Leslie Stahl uh, back in the garage. Well, you know, Leslie Stahl, you're an interviewer, and I get nervous when I interview interviewers. I have not interviewed many of them. I want you nervous. That'll you do? Good is that for me. is that your tactic? No, it's not my tactic, but I'm rarely interviewed. Yeah. So I want I want to keep you just a little off balance. Am I going to be able to? I, I'm always off balance. That's not going to be a challenge for you to keep me off balance. <laughs> but, you know, like I watch, like I have certain questions that I don't want to get into, like specific interviews. But let's start with like, how did you, where'd you come from? I came from Swampscott, Massachusetts. Really? Yeah, that's north of Boston, right on the ocean. It is spectacularly beautiful. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I love it in L.A., because I can go out to Santa Monica uh-huh. and look at the ocean and feel at home. Different ocean, though. Yeah, but it looks exactly the same. You'd Does be it? Exactly yeah. the same. I spent a lot of time in the New England area, and that ocean, there's a ruggedness to uh, to the, the a kind of like Marblehead. And, you know, the That's further where I'm up. from, Marblehead Swamp's Good. It's right. a place. Yeah, oh, I, so you know my town. I do. I know New England pretty well. Well, I, it's, the real difference is the temperature. The water that's right. is unbearably cold right there yeah and the humidity in the uh, in the summer is awful yeah so you just uh, how many people in your family how many kids uh, like I, from you sisters me brother? and my brother and you just grew up in Swampscott. we just grew up in Swampscott. you don't strike me as like a, a new england person i really well, i felt like the, i always felt like maybe you're a new york person no 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 uh, no what'd your father do up there well my father went to mit to study organic chemistry Wow. And then went into business with his father and his brother. Uh-huh. And initially they made leather colors. Yeah. For de- for tanning or dyeing leather? For leather. Yeah. They made the colors. Yeah. And then they made all, they moved a little, they stayed doing that and m- went on to make shiny things. <laughs> and they made, for example. <laughs> he specialized in shiny that, things. Shiny things. Yeah. For example, they made something that should have been a roaring success and wasn't. Yeah. The pour on floor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. And it was... Like anyone can do it or just like a linoleum that you could yes, pour? Yes, it was like linoleum. Uh-huh. You'd pour it, it would harden. Uh-huh. And we had it in our kitchen. It of course never you did. scuffed. Uh-huh. It was beautiful. Uh-huh. And it just didn't take off. Didn't but catch on. they also invented the shiny look, uh-huh. uh, you know, raincoats that looked like leather and had a huge, oh, okay. lovely shine Yeah, to yeah. Them. They invented that and that was a big success. Yeah. So, so he had a patent on the shiny stuff. He had patents on the shiny <laughs> stuff and pour on floor and uh, they made some kind of inks they also made the tr- the paint that goes down uh, the middle of the of highways they made that yeah they made that the reflective shiny paint that yeah, they need yeah, to redo in LA yellow <laughs> LA they never expect well, rain well they probably didn't buy my father's if they have to redo it <laughs> So, so but you, then he sold his business yeah. when I was uh, in my early 20s uh-huh and that was it? He retired? He didn't retire. He went to work for the company that bought his company. Uh-huh. And, uh, because ran... he wanted to? I think he did. He didn't want... He was too young to retire. But right. He wanted to sell the business. And he, went... he became uh, the head of a whole new division and went around the world buying companies. And had... he told me it was the happiest time of his whole career. So he's a, uh, an entrepreneur and a world traveler and a big business guy. Yes. That started out in Swampscott. Started in Swampscott. And his, his little company called Stahl yeah. was an international company. Yeah. So he traveled constantly and took my brother and me with him a lot. So, so you got e- to see the world. 
even before I got to CBS News, yeah, where we travel all the time, yeah, uh, I traveled all the time, yeah. And what'd your brother end up doing? My brother was in real estate, okay, uh, and then sadly he died when he was fifty-five years old. Oh, I'm sorry, of larynx cancer. Oh my God, uh-huh. sorry to hear that. Where did you? Where are you from? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. My parents are from Jersey. Oh. Uh, originally, so like I'm genetically Jersey, and my you know roots are in Jersey, and I spent a lot of time there as a kid. But don't you think that when you when you go to school, that then your peers are more formative than okay. your parents? Well, I think that uh, I've grown to believe that however you're wired emotionally and whatever those shortcomings or strengths may be, you're put in pretty early, and then uh, you <laughs> really. Yeah, what do you? I, I think I disagree a little bit. Yeah, because I'm. I think high school, and uh, Mean Girls, and all of that, pro- I think maybe shaped me more than anything, even my own basket of genes. Really, I, I, well, I mean, I think that I don't know if it's true. But you think I feel it shaped like, your sense of self? You, 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 a sense of yeah, my sense of self, uh, my interests. Uh huh. Well, yeah, my insecurities. Well, they can certainly make you aware of those when yeah. your feelings are hurt. I, yeah, I spent a long time looking, uh, you know, for something to be and for how to act and what I was interested in. I think those come from influences, and I think those are very defining. But you know, just judging by my um, life and relationships, uh, the more emotionally and intimate things in my life, I'm like, oh my god, I'm them. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> or, or I've accomplished the anti them. Right, but, one or the other. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that comes from that fight. Yeah, there's a determination. Like, well, I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna be that. And then you know, eventually, it, it you do. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty sad. <laughs> Is it true though? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you hear your mother or your father in your head, but uh, depends on how determined you are not to be. Right, yeah. and that's that's exhausting. You know, you can't. Yeah, it's you know, a very exhausting. After, right. after a certain point, you got to uh, uh, like uh, embrace the good things about them, and hopefully, they'll outweigh the the negative things that are coming out of you. Right. <laughs> right. So that's you know that's how I grew up. So so what was the process? Uh, you had a curiosity, I guess, and you had some experience global traveling. But how did you like? Where did you go to college? What led you to journalism? I'm I, sure you've I, answered these questions before. Well, you know, you, know you must have wanted to do I'm something not, else. I'm not. A kid, mm-hmm. and in my day, God, I can't believe I'm saying this. My day, I say oh. that, and I'm 53. Oh, doesn't it, I sound like my grandfather? So much my has day. changed, though. Oh. I mean, like in the last decade, it's different. It's like profoundly different. Well, yes, but I, I'm going back. Yeah. So no one ever even mentioned journalism yeah. to me. Did, never wrote for the school paper. Yeah. Never took a journalism course. Came to New York. Was going to be a doctor. Really. Really. Uh, so that, that when you say I'm a New Yorker, I did go to New York in the early '60s uh-huh. to to prepare for medical school. Uh huh. And what did you it, study undergrad? You just, uh, just uh, did history. This? Okay. And then got I didn't have enough science courses. Uh-huh. Went to Columbia. Yeah. Majored in zoology. Hated it for graduate school. Yep. Zoology. So well, I didn't have enough science credits. So that's and, what you thought you'd lock them yeah, down. Yeah. Yep. Hated it, hated it. I wouldn't touch anything. You know, the the TA said to me, Leslie, you can't be a doctor. And it was just too icky. Yeah, really? Like just like dead animals and bugs and. Well, parts of animals. Sorry. She parts. She parts of animals? She parts my. And they gave me my own dogfish shark. To work on for the semester. (laughs) Yeah. No good. 
no good. So, so so then I was then I ended up answering an ad in the New York Times. Uh-huh. Went to work for Mayor Lindsay. Oh yeah, Mayor Lindsay. Mayor Lindsay. I did like I, he's before my political awareness, but I remember seeing pictures of him a lot in the seventies. Gorgeous. Yeah. Was really he a good uh, good mayor? He was uh, just an okay mayor. He had a strike and things conspired against him, but he was a good guy. And what year are we talking? 67, six, I was working for him 66, 67. And Doing one, what? I uh, worked on his speech writing staff. Really? Yeah, as a researcher. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then went uh, into the newsroom one day yeah. where all the reporters hung out and asked one of them, what do you do all day? <laughs> Who are you? What do you do? <laughs> yeah. And he told me, and when he finished, I had a burning, almost passionate desire to be a reporter. And it was what a was flash. It? What did he tell you? What was well, it that he, really provoked he, he, you? <laughs> he told me, you know, basically fundamentally that you could be really nosy yeah. <laughs> and gossipy and you could write it down and tell other people what the secret you found out and they yeah. pay you. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, <laughs> no one told me that. Yeah, that I could make my hobby a profession. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're laughing, but it's kind of true. Uh-huh. And then I went looking for a job as a journalist as a with journalist. no experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and NBC News was gearing up their election unit for mm-hmm. the '68 presidential campaign. Humphrey and Nixon. Yeah, yeah. And I got the job because I was a researcher already, uh-huh. and they were hiring me as a researcher. Yeah. Uh, and really, those were the only jobs there were for women. At that time. Yes. Yeah. This is pre-affirmative action. Right. So So they hired me. I told, oh my goodness, I jumped. And what'd you learn on that campaign? Oh, it was a wonderful job. I loved it. Were you a political person? Not really. My mother and father disagreed violently. Oh yeah? On what sides? My dad was a Democrat, a liberal Democrat, and my mother was a conservative Republican, and they didn't, they never voted the same, and they argued and I grew up in that household, and I thought whenever my mother spoke, she made sense. Whenever my dad spoke, he made sense. So it is kind of a, a tricky balance, and usually it goes the other way. You know, usually the man is the conservative, I would think, but maybe I'm generalizing. Well, they say that women, as women age, yeah, they get more liberal, and as men age, they get more conservative. Sure, as they feel it slipping away, <laughs> that they need somewhere to be angry about. Well, maybe it's as women realize they may be widows, they want more government support. I don't know. There's huh. a sort want, of bunch yeah. of reasons, but what were their backgrounds? Like, what you know, what kind of family was it? Like, are you Jewish or you yeah, Jewish? Yeah, but no religion. Right. Well, yeah, like yeah. most of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. A, a totally mainstream. <laughs> yeah, culturally Jewish. <laughs> exactly. Kind. Right. No, really. Yeah. So, all right. So there you are, and like that was a big uh, that was a big election, and you know Nixon was not uh, appealing, except to my mother. Really? Oh, yeah. How that guy charmed anybody is fascinating to me. I know. Yeah, yeah but, but he did. He, well, I'm not sure charmed is the right word. Yeah, what do you think it was? Um, I, I think that, that he conveyed a sense of stability mm-hmm. uh, and experience. Mm-hmm. He, he'd done a lot, been, and he was very smart. Yeah. yeah it isn't he was always, a real politician. He was a real politician, but he came off as, uh, I think, uh, someone with depth, uh-huh. and he was smart. And uh, maybe it was kind of like now where people were looking for some kind of even right. s- stability. We go back and forth between wanting someone who's a little older and a little calmer, and then the new guy who's going to... Change everything. Whip it, yes. Yeah, and, like and they're t- just 
turn it in on itself. Yeah. What I find interesting, though, is like I came very late to politics and, you know, you really kind of made your bones, you know, reporting in politics. And, you know, I was I don't know if I was apathetic, but I, I guess I was. I, I was a more creatively driven person. And then somewhere in the very late after Reagan, you know, and I'm 53, so I should have been more active. Right. And this is something that resonates with me now because of the election is that if you're progressive or liberal or or you just want to you know you're doing other things you're an arty person you just want things to be okay and you don't you don't you're not you don't you don't activate your your civic responsibility you take things for granted and uh, or maybe I should just say I do and this is one of those elections where it's sort of like you know we're all we all sort of took things for granted a lot of people well i do think it it it's very much determined by the time in which you come of age. Yeah. And if you came of age in the 60s... It would have been different. Well, of course, it was the draft, yep. and there was a Vietnam War, and uh, Nixon and Watergate, all these things conspired to make even the youngest person... Freak concerned out. About, yeah, freak out and be concerned about the leadership of the country and all of that. And then there were, I actually was... Uh, my formative years were in the Eisenhower years... Right, in the and 50s. we would call the silent generation. And why so, was that? If in retrospect, were you comfortable? Were you? Did you think everything was okay? Yeah, and we had <laughs> Daddy running the government. You uh -huh. didn't have to worry about it. Uh huh. Yeah, uh, he was a general. The general's he, running the. And government. he was older uh -huh. and calmer. Uh huh. Uh, very much calmer. And the and the you know the economy was really going slowly but steadily upward. Incomes were going steadily upward. They, the middle class was just exploding. Wasn't that the establishment of the middle class? Wasn't that where, where it really became defined during those times? The, the, the man in the gray flannel suit, yes. Yeah. But we also, at that point, had the unions coming on strong and forcing the, auto, the car companies and the other large companies, GE, to pay a decent wage because the unions were strong. Right. And uh, it just was a, a time of great promise. We, we, we were still coming out of World War II. We right. were still, our parents were still thinking about um, the Depression. Mm -hmm. It just was a completely calm. Right. They, and there was relief. It seemed like America was going to, uh, you know, fulfill its promise to these people. Right. And people were looking inward yeah. instead of outward. Okay. You know, we had been through World War II. We did have the Korean War. I, w I was too young to really be that aware. Well, you of it. might have an opportunity to see another one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's awfully kind of you to. <laughs> if you missed the first us. one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do think the 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 times will create a political person. Right. So when you start, when you got that job as a researcher, what you're in your early twenties. Yeah. And it's 1968, and things are starting to blow up, and you know, in terms of culturally. Exactly. And you know, did you feel that happening? Oh yeah. All around. Well, there were marches. There yep. were anti-war marches. And uh, just beginning, just beginning. And Lindsey, who had been my boss, was very much involved in that. He was one of the first people in Congress uh, to vote against the Vietnam War. Yeah. So, yeah, it was in the air. Yeah. And then we had the 68 convention. Right. And the hippies and the, you know, the big the uh, marches and, and you know, the, the violence. And the violence. Yeah. Uh, and Mayor uh, Daley in Chicago you know, causing mayhem at, at the convention. So, yeah, that was kind of the beginning right. of everybody's n new awareness of politics. And then when they, well, I guess when the when the kids got shot at Kent State, that kind of sealed the deal that there was a real fight for the country and what people believed it should be. Right. 
and there were strikes and demonstrations at virtually every university. And they're coming out of the silent generation. And it's the baby boom generation. So that's a huge number of people. Was it scary? You you know, because now, like, you you know, I don't, I can't picture it because I was way too young, but there, like, there's a tangible fear in the air to me. And I'm an older person now, but I I just wondered then, was there, like, a, a fear of the government? Well, my my recollection, and things you know, things get uh, accordioned in uh-huh. in your in your memory, right? About compartmentalized, what, yeah, and what's really big. And but my memory is that that sense of fear that we're having now is more similar to what was going on during Watergate than the '60s, so the early '70s, mm-hmm. when. The country was completely polarized, much as it is now. Yeah. And uh, half the country loved the president. The other half hated the president, and there was no in-between. Uh-huh. And people uh, were still demonstrating against the Vietnam War. So there was actually more violence in the country than now. Was the, was the polarization as vicious? Yeah, it was. Definitely. And hmm. Agnew, the vice president, was running around the country attacking the press. Mm-hmm. Um, there are similarities, and... You know, when I say my brain has been accordioned, I, it may have been worse then. You you always think it's worse now. Sure. But it may have actually, uh, there may have been more uh, strife and more division, serious division in the yeah. country than even now. Well, because I think it seems that the then, you know, the, the momentum of the younger people was massive. And, yeah. Right, and and now it seems like a lot of the younger people are are either detached or or not sure how to activate. Like you see these marches, and a lot of you know people are coming together. But back then, it was it was all like you know eighteen to twenty two year olds. Well, they had the draft. Yeah, to, yeah, this it was is terrifying. not now. Right, yeah. and they so they really had skin in the game totally. Right, and they were the baby boomers, so there were huge numbers. Right, although I just read a poll this morning. Yeah, about. 18 to 24 year olds really turning seriously against President Trump. Yeah. So maybe there's an activation going on right now. Yeah, what that looks like, I don't know. It could be just tweets. <laughs> yeah, well, there's no draft. I mean, you know, that that's made, right. That made a giant difference. Yeah, that makes sense to me. So, how did you get from research to, you know, to reporting? Slowly. Yeah. Very slowly. Actually, my first ambition was to be a producer because, uh, I my perception was that the producers, uh, generally, generally speaking, in television, mm-hmm. were doing a lot of the reporting, yeah, and writing, yeah, and that's what I was interested in. You ultimately do that now, though, right? I mean, we you do know, it now, to, but but to... in those days, that's where my head was, right. and I was probably wrong in my perceptions back then. Uh huh. But that's what I thought. So I was trying to become a producer. Okay. And uh, it took me a long time. But yeah. I didn't care. I loved every job I had yeah. in journalism. So what was the big break? Oh, I, if, if any young people are listening, they'll, they are. they'll appreciate that the, young, that the big break was, was a failure. Oh. And, you know, you come out of the ashes and you're actually stronger. <laughs> what do you mean it was a well, failure? It, I, well, I had fallen on my face and had to build back. How so? Well, I was after the election. Yeah, in '68. In '68, NBC News sent yeah. me to London, uh-huh. where uh, they made me something called a field producer, which meant absolutely nothing. I did nothing, uh-huh. nothing meaningful in my own eyes. And uh, the, the then president of C- of NBC News 
said to me when I complained about it, he said, you know, you, you young people, you think you can start at the top? Right. Well, if you start at the top, you're going to fall flat on your face. Uh, nobody starts at the top at a network. If you really want to be a journalist, go get a job at a newspaper, go to a, a wire service, uh-huh. or go home and go to a local television station. Right. So I applied everywhere. Yeah. New York Times, UPI. Uh, I was living in London at the time, so I tried to get a job there, and no one would hire me. Mm. Came home to visit my parents and went over to the local CBS affiliate in Boston, and they hired me. And it was a step backward. It was a big step back to go from the network right. as a field producer to become a producer uh-huh. on a show in Boston that was very similar to C- uh, 60 Minutes in its format anyway. But you were not uh, no in front of the camera no, aspirations? No, but that was, no. You I just wanted w- to be a, re- a producer. So you wanted to uh, amalgamate research and find the through line and, and set up the segments. And even write it in those days. Yeah. That's what we did everything except record our voices. Right. And uh, I was so happy. I, I, to me, I had fulfilled my dream, and I had clawed my way back, yeah. and had done what that man said. I had to start at the beginning and learn the profession step by step by step. No leapfrogging. Take right. every baby step. But it was necessary, obviously. Clearly. I mean, to learn to get the skill set. Exactly. You know, if you were a field producer, what 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 was that really? What did that really mean? You were nothing. Just, it meant I, nothing. Nothing. Really, nothing. I would go out with a camera crew and say, "Could you take a picture of that?" That was it. And then they'd organize it later. So the real yeah. producing happened later. Oh yeah, right. right. All right. So you're learning your trade. You're and producing segments. And I'm living segments. in Boston, yeah, which is one of the great reporting towns, cities in the country because yeah. it's a capital. Yeah, it's where all the great universities and medicine, and in those days politics, because busing was the big story. Mm-hmm. And we had the busing queen, uh, Louise Louise Day Hicks. Uh-huh. That was her name, Louise yeah. Day Hicks. Uh, everything was there, right there. Uh, and one day, they decide, well, they, the FCC denies the renewal license to the owner for lots of reasons you don't care about. Uh, the owner of what? The busing company? The owner of the television station. Oh, the te- okay. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. And uh, my t- station was taken off the air. Oh, really? Mm. And right before that happened, my w- wonderful boss said, you know, I'm going to give you some on-camera uh, experience. Why did they shut the station? Was there was it political? It was that the owner engaged in an ex, what they called an ex parte communication, uh, some kind of a bribe to one of the FCC commissioners to re up the oh. license. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was something like a a a, 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 a cruise or something oh, like that okay, on right, a yacht yeah. or something. Let me take care of you. Yeah, on the station. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And that, and he blew the whistle, and that was it. So, everybody at the station was then looking for a job, and I got a call from an old friend in New York mm-hmm. from my NBC days, yeah. saying, "You know, there's this thing called affirmative action, uh-huh. and all the network news out stations outlets are desperate for any woman who has any experience or any minority who has any experience. So the, the so you did, did you took the gig doing on-camera stuff before yeah. you got to New York? Yes. Okay. So you had a little of that. And the, my friend said you have to put together a reel of your work. Did you like doing it? Right Putting away. Putting together the No, oh, like being on camera? Um 
I I wasn't very good at it. I remember having to do what we call a stand-up uh-huh. for the end of the piece where the correspondent finally appears on camera. Which you do at the beginning of the piece now on 60 Minutes. Oh, on 60 Minutes, yeah. 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 But the, <laughs> this was for hard news, yeah. as we say. And the end of the piece is about 15 seconds. Uh-huh. And I couldn't do it. And the camera, sweet cameraman threw away an entire reel of film. We used to work in film. Uh-huh. He just said, well, I, I misplaced it. Oh, we you were nervous? So that was like 15 minutes. I couldn't do 15 seconds. I couldn't remember 15 seconds in my head. I, oh, my goodness. But I, I wanted to... Uh, the jobs available were on camera. So that didn't make the reel, that part. <laughs> no. That, well, I finally got the 15 seconds okay. onto the reel, yeah. right? Um, and, it, and the networks were really desperate for women around the country who had done any work. And there were very few because it was pre-affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And CBS hired me. Great. Now that's that was my big break. That was the uh, thanks to affirmative action and the, and the station being taken off the air. Right. Yes. No. Definitely affirmative action. No question. And about then you that. started as you were an on-air reporter. Reporter for which which show was that? Face the Nation. Which show was that? No. No. Was no. That earlier. was for the CBS Bureau in Washington, and it was the the diamonds in the Tiffany Network. Okay. We had, I'm going th- across the row. We had right. Marvin Kalb, Dan Rather. Roger Mudd, Dan Shore, uh, remember all of them. They, I walked into that bureau my first day of work and was completely dazzled. And their offices were like <laughs> the windows of Saks Fifth Ave- Avenue. Yeah. You know, the, the doors didn't close. Uh-huh. So you, you walked in and there they were sitting at their desks <laughs> yeah. in these open offices. <laughs> and oh, I thought I'd gone to heaven. Yeah. And so that was in Washington? Yes. And so then you were a you were a Washington correspondent? No, they hired the affirmative action babies. Yeah. That's what we called ourselves. Um, as really apprentices. Uh-huh. And we had a different title. We were reporters and all those stars were correspondents. And we were apprenticed to one of them. One of the, each one got paired off. And we learned by osmosis. Who'd you get? I got Dan Shore. Mm-hmm. We learned by osmosis, just following them around. They didn't instruct us. They just let us tag along. Well, how much did you know going into uh, covering politics, the, the, the way it worked? Because like, I, what I found is that when I started working at Air America years ago, I, I, I knew very little about how politics works. Did you, did you know any of that going in? Um, I don't remember that being... I didn't. The answer is no, I didn't. But I don't remember that being my problem as much as writing uh-huh. how to write a, a really good television hard news story well who did the reporting on it like where would you get the information if you're writing a piece about a piece of legislation or a, a international problem i mean wh- wh- what is the process what did you do well in the beginning i followed dan Shore around yeah <laughs> watched what he was doing this was 1972, okay. and the presidential election of that year was underway, and the bureau was pretty empty because most of the correspondents were assigned different candidates in the primaries. Okay, Nixon was yeah, run, yeah was running for re-election, so there were a lot of Democrats running. And, right, uh, there were very like, few people, and like McGovern and Muskie and all, like, yeah. you know, like all those guys. All those guys. I, I, kind of, I vaguely remember from Mad Magazine because I was nine years old. So, like, I remember the characters, but I remember caricatures of them because that's how I got the news. Mad Magazine. Well, they weren't going to send the new kids yeah. out there. So yeah. we were the very few in the Bureau. Uh-huh. Uh, and I came 
right before this unbelievable break-in at the Watergate of the Democratic National Committee, and nobody thought it was anything except a very local B&E. And they sent B&E? me break-in and oh, entering. Yeah, right. Break-in and yeah. entering. Yeah. Not at Watergate in those days. It was just the Democratic Party. And no one sent reporters uh-huh. except the Washington Post and CBS News. Uh-huh. And they sent me alone without an, my... Without Dan Shore, just me. Just to report on the break-in. Just to be there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah on the break-in. And right. It was in the court. I went to the arraignment of the burglars. Mm-hmm. And the only other reporter in the courtroom was a guy named Bob Woodward. Yeah. And the two of us were in the in the reporter section, and that was it. And huh. no one else was It was an empty courtroom. What did you feel that day? Were you well, like, something's up? But Yeah. <laughs> and Bob and I, our eyes were bulging because... One of them worked for Creep, which was the committee to reelect the president. Sure. And there were these uh, consecutively numbered $100 bills mm-hmm. and phony passports. I mean, it was all smelly. Yeah. But we were the, and, and I would run to the phone, as I was instructed, and record radio. Uh huh. From the, I, from the courthouse. From the courthouse. I was reporting what I was seeing. They had a row I, of phones then for yes, reporters. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Run to the, to yeah. the newsroom and I've pick up a phone. I've seen it in movies. Actually, I, re, I think it was not quite that. I think I, I ran outside and went to a pay phone. Sure. And put in my dimes and uh, recorded these things for radio. And I only found out years and years later that they never put them on the air. Really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, really. So every so you hour or so, I'm writing these little short 45-second summaries of what was happening uh-huh. in the courtroom with all this stuff about the na- the creep and the money. Yeah. And went nowhere. Didn't we're, even go out on the airwaves. Oh, that's sad. You, you of, were doing big things, and, and it just no one, was, uh, no one was listening. Yeah, but I was learning. Yeah. The, the good part was I was learning. But you stayed in the saddle with Watergate through the whole thing. Exactly. And you were there, you know, scooping it to well, some degree. Well, in the beginning, every time the story died, yeah. which it did every couple of weeks, it just died. It was over. Mm. Woodward would this say to familiar. me, don't give up. Don't let them take this away from you. Well, of course they did. I was the junior. And yeah. as it became a big story and in the courts, in Congress, uh, wherever the story went, the mm-hmm. White House, I was always number two. To, but I stayed with it. To Shore. To Shore and then to Fred Graham, who was at the who was covering it in the in the courts and Dan Rather in the White House and you know it just kept moving right it was a, it was this blob but Woodward and Bernstein like you were talking to Bob Woodward and they were the ones that ultimately broke it right yeah but they kept breaking it and right. it would die and then they'd break it again and and each time they broke it again it got closer and closer to the president well, tell me how that worked then, because, you know, we're witnessing it now. I'm too young to remember Watergate. I mean, what was the pushback from the administration that would would make it go away? Well, the whole uh, operation of the White House was uh, built to keep it away from the president. Right. And obviously there was this deep throat guy mm-hmm. <laughs> having Woodward meet him in garages and things like that. And the leaker. The leaker. Mm-hmm. And every time the White House put up a wall, the leaker managed to put, you know, get a little hole in the wall. Yeah. And push it further and f- further toward bit. the White House. Yeah. And it was incremental. This story went on for two and a half, close to three years. Uh, and it was, it was, if you telescope it, unrelenting, but to live through it, 
It was more drawn uh, out. Oh, way drawn out. And and as I keep saying, it kept dying. And I kept saying to to my friend Bob, I can't stay on this. There's nothing. I have to go cover other stories. I yeah. have to advance my career. Right. Don't let go. Don't let go. He kept saying. He wanted as many people as possible working on it? <laughs> no. He was my friend and oh, telling me that this, this was something. going to explode one day. And he saw you as sort of like, you know, he was a newspaper guy and you were a TV person. No, no. We no? were dating. Oh, okay. I was his girlfriend. <laughs> and he was just, he never gave me right. a story. He never told me anything. He just kept just saying, say, just don't let them take this away from that's me. That's interesting. Journalists dating. <laughs> that, that, that must yeah, you thought coming. we never did, right? I didn't know. I, I, like, uh, maybe I should have known. But but uh, but like, was that a competitive situation? No. No? Are you still friends? Yes. Well, that's nice. Yeah. So, all right. So, like... It, Let's talk a little bit about your job currently and, and how this works, you, you know, in the sense that, you know, you spent all, how long did it take for that thing to-, to Three years. Three years for yeah. it to, to take him down. Yes. So what we're seeing now, like, I, I think I want to talk about, because, you know, you do you do get scoops, you do produce, you do report, but like in terms of like the, the leakers and the whistleblowers, like especially in a time like you know now, and I imagine in a time like then, it doesn't seem that, that people really know that they're necessary. That, you know, in a sense that you, you have to have them when, you know, especially when the whole thing is rigged against you. And I, I'm saying rigged, but, but just saying by there's one party dominating and everything is, is insulated, you know, uh, uh, executively. That if you don't have whistleblowers and you don't have leakers, uh, it's a real problem. Well, I think whistleblowers and leakers <clears throat> only become heroes in history. Uh-huh. At the time, uh, particularly when we're talking about the White House, yeah. uh, those officials who are on the record will put up a huge battle against the leakers because they always. know always while it's going on. Yeah. Because they know that they could bring them down. Yeah. So uh, we're seeing now, and and for the last several presidencies, it's not just President Trump. It was Obama. It was Clinton. It uh-huh. was George W. Uh-huh. I mean, this dislike of the press, dislike of anybody within their administration who talks to the press secretly. I mean, they're seen as betrayers and traitors. Uh, and that's, I guess that's the way it's always been. So Deep Throat is only a hero in hindsight. At yeah. the time, somebody like him would be castigated. Don't forget, when, when there is a president, that means, except this time, that most people voted for him. Right. Except this time. Yeah. But but generally, the public is on the side of the president in the beginning. They just voted for him. You want to think you made the right decision. Yeah. You want to th- you support your guy, yeah. your team, you're on sure. his team. Right. And so when you begin to see that the press or whoever you're going to blame for the negative stories mm-hmm. are going after your guy, uh, you're going to dislike them intensely. And that's where we are right now, and that's where we were during Watergate. So after Watergate and after that, I mean, I imagine, you, you, you know, when you bring a president down, that the the nation must be just sort of like, what the fuck just happened? Like, I, I what was the... Well, what- it was incremental enough that they knew it was coming. Yeah, and we there was a, there were impeachment proceedings going on in Congress for like a while. For a while. Yeah. And it was the drip 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 right. drip drip and the public 
I think they were exhausted. Mm. And when Jerry Ford came in, I, I was in the midst of it and couldn't believe how quickly things just settled down. Mm-hmm. How important who is president is to the mood of the country. Yes. So here we had all the turmoil, constant churning, 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 arguing, screaming. These these hearings were on television all the all day long. Right, I remember. And then that. reprised every night. And then Jerry Ford, oh, such a normal man. He made his own English muffins in the in the White House, uh, and he had you know the kids, little things. kids, and his and the first lady was talking about dealing with sex with her children, uh-huh. and it was normal. Oh, is that what and they felt? People he, felt they yeah. were they were normal yeah. people. He hadn't even run for president. Yeah. He was an appointed vice president, and he didn't have that craziness that people who run for president have. Uh huh. And really, the whole that bubble that was just expanding, expanding, just burst. Yeah, just settled down. So, as you as you did this, as you covered the White House, because like I was trying to think, you know, what was baffling when I, you know, when I watch your interviews with presidents, and I watched, uh, you know, with with the the one with President Elect Trump, you know, shortly after that, you know. Outside of the investigative pieces, which we'll talk about, just in talking to these guys who have this amazing power, and you know that they have this power, and on some level, you know that you know you're going to, uh, they're going to attempt to use you as a facilitator of whatever bullshit they want to put out in the world. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so like as a reporter, knowing that's the score, because I've talked to politicians before. I talked to Obama, but I was carefully not. I was careful not to talk about politics because that's not usually what I do here. But when you're doing that, you know what what is what is going to make it different? How are you not just going to fulfill their agenda? Like when you walk into that, mm-hmm. From, that that's you, that's the game, and I use that word, yeah, game, because he has the president, and it's always been a he. He has uh, his his agenda for this interview, yeah. And of course, we're trying to get past the talking points. Right. We're very desperately trying to get past the talking points. Right. And you just go back and forth. It's it's a tennis match. Right. Here's my question to break through the wall of your planned remarks. Right. And to give you a pr- question you weren't expecting, because they they plan for especially a big interview like sixty minutes. They yeah. plan for it. He he sure. probably had people all anybody coming on a senator or whatever. They have their staff throwing questions at them ahead of time. Uh huh. And so you're trying to get around that, and um, even for a second, yeah, you know, because <laughs> even for a second, even for a look, right, 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 right. 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 Because I notice like in 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 you talking about. Uh, your your interview with Trump most you know recently in terms of the the president elect interview was that you know he you know you were observant of his body language you you were making assumptions based on your experience with past presidents and and like I I wonder how you feel about that in retrospect your assumptions about what happened that day in talking to him well it it was surprising all the way around mm-hmm. that interview I had already interviewed him the day he named. Pence is his running mate. So I had been in the room with a guy who was a, ha, had the sense of a cat who was ready to pounce, yeah. just ready for a combat. Did you know him before from New York? A little. Yeah. I'd interviewed him before, but I didn't uh. know him really well. Uh, <laughs> Does <and> anybody? <laughs> <laughs> he had insisted that my boss and I go and meet him in his office before 
the first interview. Uh-huh. Uh, it was, I felt it was somewhat of an audition. I, I, I actually felt it when we were in the room. Yeah, how he could work you. I mean, that's what he's a hustler. So like he's got it. Like he's got to see the mark to figure out how he can charm you, right? Oh, he did charm us. Believe me, he I hear he's very us. good at that. He was excellent at that, <laughs> and he gave us a little tour of his <laughs> office, which is huge. This is the best office huge. in all it's of huge. New York. It's yes. huge. This yeah. is the best office. Yeah. Look at my view. It's the best view in the world. You know that kind of thing. Uh-huh. Um, but he, but so I expected the first. Trump that I saw when he was still running, but I interviewed him again, the one you're talking yeah. about, three days after the election. Yeah. A different man walked in. Oh, here's something interesting about him. He doesn't, he didn't at least in those days, come with an entourage. Uh-huh. He walked in the room alone uh-huh. and sat down alone yeah. and didn't have the usual people around him whispering in his ear that you see with so many politicians. And he was calm. Instead of leaning forward, ready to pounce, he was leaning back. Uh-huh. And I just had the strongest impression, even though he denied it, um, that he was he was in shock, <laughs> that he had not expected to win. <laughs> and this was only three days later, yeah. and it was still, you know, the, the idea that he had this huge responsibility now was just washing over him. It was a strong impression. Uh huh. But he didn't. He he denied it. Oh yeah, yeah totally yeah. denied sure. it. Oh, he knew he was going to win all all along. Yeah. Well, what did you learn? What have you learned from interviewing? I guess like what is it? Carter through Trump, you've interviewed all of them. I, did I? I didn't interview George W. Oh really? Yeah. But all the others. <laughs> did you try? Uh, well, I was at sixty minutes by then, and he was taken. Another oh. correspondent. Okay. Was assigned. Uh, with, with Clinton. Uh, I interviewed him in a group. Uh-huh. The whole team interviewed Clinton okay. when he was president. Yeah, he he didn't like sixty minutes. Yeah, and uh, they they he and and Hillary uh, were unhappy with the interview. That's the brilliant interview that Steve Croft did with them when they were still running. Uh, I don't. It, it a lot of people, a lot of analysts say that made him president. Yeah, but uh, they didn't like it. So oh, they, oh but really? so it, yeah so. We did, though. 60 Minutes did interview him. Mike was there. Morley was there. Ed Bradley. Yeah. And Steve Croft and I, five on one. Uh-huh. Yeah. And they didn't like it. Well, that interview, I think they liked. Because, like, I know it's a, it's a challenge. Like, coming from, like, ideological press, where you don't, you know, where you, theoretically, you have to be unbiased in your approach. Right. And, you, and trained to be. Right. And, and, you know, people are going to make whatever assumptions they're going to make. And, like, we've already established that, you know, the idea is to try to uh, cleverly and, and uh, get around their talking points to at least get a moment of, of authenticity or, or thoughtfulness or, or uh, catch them in, uh, I don't know, a lie or not a lie. But you know, just kind of like what you're doing right now. That kind of thing, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but but what, what, what I'm curious about in that, you know, having interviewed these presidents and then seeing the arc of their careers after your assumptions and after your interviews and whatever information you got, what have you learned about these men uh, who are in this position, you know, outside of that, you know, they're cagey and some of them are smarter than others. But is there a common thread to how they hold that job? No. 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 It's I all want, different. Yeah. I once asked somebody about this in this particular case, but it's a lesson for anybody at the top of a big organization. This was about football coaches, and I wanted to define what makes a successful 
football coach in terms of temperament yeah. and personality. And I was informed that there there is no formula. You know, you can have a football coach who screams and yells at everybody and never invites them in for a one-on-one chat. Mm-hmm. And then you ha- can have the coach that's dancing in the locker room with the guys. Right. And they're both wildly successful. And, and I would say the same with presidents. You have introverts and extroverts. You have schmoozers and guys who close the door and don't want anyone coming in. Yeah. Um, and, and so that question about what does it take is yeah. pretty much indefinable. But there's got to be some like... It, Ambition is maybe the only thing. But some of them, I guess, are better leaders than others. And sometimes mm-hmm. that depends on who they surround themselves with. Probably a mm-hmm. great deal. Right. I, uh, I'll agree with that. And 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 then, you know, in terms of... I, it, it but just, it's also the times that they're in that require an outgoing or an ingoing or a, a person who wants to... Th- quiet things down or whip things up yeah it, it can't just be the isolated figure he's right for this time but wrong for that time yeah I and, get it. and i you and and things will change in the middle of a presidency yeah he'd be right at the beginning and wrong at the end i mean we've had a lot sure, of that sure and but like being in it all the time like i watched your interview with uh with netanyahu in mm-hmm. israel yes and he's like you know he's he's um he's a very grounded no bullshit kind of character in, no. No. <laughs> I mean, I don't, to be honest, I don't think there, we were talking about what's the common thread. Yeah. There's bullshit with all of them. Right. So, sure. That's the one common that's thread. That's the one you common thread. You found it. You put your finger right, right. on it. Right. So, you've got to, you've got to get around. The, <laughs> yeah. That's but another word for talking about. Right. <laughs> but I told you it's a game. Right. And I really like politicians. You'd have to to stick around and cover that world. So Why much. do you like them? Well, most of them, and this, and when I meet someone who isn't this way, I'm I'm basically hurt. But most of them come into this business to do good. Right. They're, they they don't set out to destroy to destroy or take the country in the wrong direction. Their their motives are are pure in but, the beginning, and I do th- I I. I don't look upon them as crooks or evil people. No? No. I guess you couldn't. In the beginning. <laughs> right. But yeah, but they're doing, they turn. doing good is relative to ideology as well. Well, yes, but, but uh, doing good is definitely related to ideology, but I want to see, in, at least in the beginning, I want to see that, that they're that their heart's in the right place, even if you don't agree with the direction that they want to take us. And you have found that, you have seen that at the beginning. Generally speaking, yes. Hmm. Generally speaking, not 100%, but generally speaking. And really, when I said to you, we're trained not to be opinionated, mm-hmm. we are. And and I've been at this, do I have to admit how long? No, I no. don't have to, but a long time. And uh, sometimes I think so long that it's it's hard to find my own opinion sometimes really it's not yeah e- like even when well, i guess it, that is relative to your own place in life too like you know where you are yeah you know how you, you feel about grandmother and stuff like that. grandmother yeah. you know different you know periods of uh, economic stability whatever it is you know what's important for you from a politician is going to be different but you know we all have a general sense of this is bad. <laughs> well, I guess where I am right now yeah. is I I worry about the future because I have grandchildren. Sure. In a way I never thought about it before, even for my own child. Yeah. So I'm I really do worry about wh- what kind of world my little kids are going to. How old are they now? Three and a half and six. Uh huh. So I'm 
I think about the environment a lot, yeah. which I hadn't been doing before, but uh-huh. I guess we're facing a crisis, so maybe everybody's there. I'm, I'm worried about, um, really, really worried about technology and the internet, what, what that's doing to us and babies' minds and all of that. Well, what has it done to journalism? Oh, my God. It's, it's changed it. Can you can you do it instead of 180? Yeah. Can it just be spinning around all the time Absolutely. so you don't know where you are yeah. at any moment? I mean, think about. It. I told you I started in film. Yeah. So in film, you had to wait for the film to be developed. Yeah. Sometime. There's no there's no time for processing. That's it. That's the big difference. And there's and there's it doesn't seem to be any real. It takes a lot of energy to source properly, just even as a consumer. So, like, I've actually been nostalgic for three for three networks, in the sense <laughs> exactly. that exactly I am too. You, you were everyone was sort of on the same page, and you could go figure out things, and and we weren't getting all the information. And now we we think we're getting all the information, but sometimes that's not even good because you know w- what's the credibility of that information? And there's absolutely everyone has a voice on a social networking platform. So there's no there's no it's an enemy of tolerance and processing and and thoughtfulness about what's happening there's no time that's right it just honors the emotions the no time is is distressing for for a a consumer but also for the journalist you you see something and boom you're you're typing it in or you're talking it in Uh, there's no time to ask for the opposing view there's no time to look for the context historically Oh, I don't know. <laughs> do, you, do you think like when, when, when well, it seems like a lot of, there's a lot of great journalism going on now. It seems like there was that, that right now, because of this presidency, it's sort of woken up, you know, the responsibility of, of news outlets to really do their job. I agree. And it seems like people are really stepping up. I agree. It's, and they're, they're not being intimidated. Mm-hmm. They're not being um, uh, forced to agree. Yeah. They're, they're really being courageous yeah uh there's a little sense of watergate in there sure absolutely i I mean there's a little sense of like there's there's watergate but there's also this pressing kind of apocalyptic vibe you know going on now yep absolutely uh, scary yeah it it is scary and Mm -hmm. i think it's been scary before but it seems more scary now to me there's too much going on it's coming at us too quickly every day i know three new things yeah and we're just not built to absorb that. Oh, you think that that's much. intentional on behalf of this? Partly, administration? I think it's to to perhaps I'm not one. I'm not covering Washington, so yeah. I'm a consumer of that news as exactly as you and all right. your listeners are. But it does look like there are attempts to distract us from X. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have your mind look at Y. Right. Uh, I I feel that there's a lot of that. Well, and and I think that some of that is uh, on the uh, is on the. It, I think that the journalists are somewhat responsible for that as well, that in being thorough, you know, at all levels and also competing to get information out there and create, you know, and finding these bits and pieces that, you know, you're getting all the pieces at once all the time yeah, and no. speculation about the pieces and, uh, and then analysis of the pieces. Like if you, if you've got three or four news outlets coming in on your phone, it's, it's nonstop. And you have a, you feel you have an obligation to report every one of them. Right. And so, and no time to put context around any of them. And it, it I don't know because I'm not right. reporting on it, but it feels deliberate. 
but it seems that some of the stuff that you do does you know take the time to process and when you do an investigative piece when you spend that time with Netanyahu or you you do the piece on Gitmo or the nuclear power plant or the one I watched about police informants oh, um, isn't that something yeah but like you know you, and you know in some of the interviews where you you get uh, the you know these these great scoops you know that that a lot of that you there's time to put it together a lot of time yeah we, we have the amount of time we need yeah for each piece unless it's it's hard news right. and then yeah. you just yeah. go with it but usually we take months mm-hmm. and you know what you want to do you you've got you, you're producing you've got this story and you're like there's got to be more to this story exactly and and that's why i have the best job certainly in broadcast journalism yeah and we're still doing it the same old way Right. Everything's the same. We still go out with two camera crews. We still take a lot of time to get the opposing views and the context. And Uh, those things make a difference. I mean, all those stories, you know, changed policy, changed, uh, you know, safety situations in these like that. The police informant thing was just horrifying because I had this moment where I watched. How old is that? That was was it last year or the yeah, year before? Two two seasons ago. Well, the moment that that that, that you showed that college interview with the guy who was in charge of this this informing oh, the unit. Police, yes, yeah. That you know what I sensed in it was this sort of like I'm going to get these college kids who they think they are. It was a little bit of that, right? Right. And and like there and that is sort of a a thread that's going on in politics now: anti elitism, anti intellectualism, you know, a, a bitterness towards towards education and towards people that seem to have a better go at it. This is what is stunning to me Mm -hmm. about working at 60 Minutes as opposed to covering the White House. Yeah. Uh, We we deal mostly with what you might call, my hands are going quotes, ordinary people. Yeah. We're not dealing with the president or the vice president. We're dealing with a family whose Mm -hmm. kid commits suicide because he's become... A police informant, and he's being called upon to tell on his friends, or he's or his family's going to find out he took some dope. Yeah, you know, and the kid can't handle it, and he kills himself. It's it's way down at the granular, yeah, horrible life that kids find find themselves in. It's real life. It's real people, and that's where stuff has to sort of start changing. You know, that's where that it's the most important there. And it hurts to yeah. cover these stories. And when you're interviewing a politician, it doesn't hurt yeah, to yeah. be uh, sure. to ask some tough questions. Right, it, it actually job. feels okay. Yeah, yeah. But these stories that you're bringing up, uh, really, I suffer. You one suffer. You suffer watching it. Yeah. And it's even worse when you're in the room with a parent. Yeah. Uh, or someone else who's faced a tragedy. Yeah. You do a lot of that. Yeah, but it it does, you, you know, when you take the time to, to, to flesh this stuff out and you have the arc of the injustice or the, you know, dubiousness of, of what's happening, that it, it, it has an impact and, and things change. It, you know, 60 minutes wow. still means something. You know, things change. I'm not so sure. Mm. I never, it's, I don't want to say never, but it's pretty rare that we do a piece, and let's say it has a huge impact, but the things really change. Uh, I worry about that all the time. Well, oh. yeah, there's a lot of lip service paid to, like, we're going to check it out. We got a guy exactly. on it. Yep. Uh, you know, we're reinvestigating. And then, and then, you know, it goes away. It goes away. Do you we ever follow up? Di- do I follow? Yeah, we follow up. We try. Yeah. 
Um, and and that's why I'm distressed because we follow up and find out nothing. Yeah, that mm-hmm. there was a little bubble of news and and, and, they and just finger pointing, and then right back to normal. They wrote and this it is out. true in Washington with legislation yeah. and so forth, and then it's true in the case of these local how police. You, well, how do you not get uh, you know depressed and uh, disillusioned? And uh, here's the sad, horrible, this, uh, sort of downside. Yeah, we move on to. Uh-huh. And we're working on our next stories. Yeah. And our next stories are absorbing, completely, totally absorbing. And we don't go back there very often. Mm-hmm. So, You're, mea culpa. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I understand that. I don't know that there's another way to be. Uh, you, you know, you can only do what you can do, right? Yeah. And you know something? It's not our role. Our role is to keep moving forward. And someone else needs to pick up the ball when we shine light somewhere. That's right. What happens at 60 Minutes, though, is we go into reruns in the summer. Uh-huh. And I'm already working for next season. Right. Because I'm finished for this. I've finished. They all haven't run yet, but I'm done reporting. Uh-huh. And now, they, well, let's talk a little bit about the book so before you. Oh, please. My book. That's, the the yes, grandma book. The grandma book. Yeah. This is like, uh, a, now, were you a good mother? Not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> but this is interesting. You know, I've I've had this I have this theory about first of all the book's called Becoming Grandma: The Joys and Science of the New Grandparenting. Yeah. But uh you asked me if I was a good mother. I was a working mother. And uh we don't think we're good mothers because we have this image we working mothers that a good mother's there. Yeah. Um I think my daughter would probably tell you I was a good mother. I wasn't on her case 24-7 because I wasn't there 24-7. And she turned out okay. She turned out great. Yeah. Um, But no, I don't think I was a good mother. Um, I wasn't a bad mother. Right. I loved her. I took care of her. I guess, you know, it's it's interesting. I I don't know what your relationship with your mother is. And, you know, I guess people do the best they can do, uh, so they say. But, you know, (laughs) I think what we underestimate is, you know, kids are pretty resilient, too. And they're going to, they're their own people. So they, they a lot of times they find their way if it's not abusive. <laughs> well, and um, I, my, somebody was taking care of my daughter. My husband worked at home. And yeah, we had daycare for you know a nanny. Yeah, uh, and and I think that my self worth was not tied up with her success. Mm-hmm. It meant a lot. She was, uh, you know, I wasn't on her case. I was not a, a helicopter mom right, at right. all. And uh, I think maybe we need to let these kids find their way more yeah. themselves. Although I did keep her pretty busy. Yeah. You know, I was hoping that if she had something to do after school every day, you know, yeah. she had gymnastics and painting and all of that stuff, she wouldn't notice that I wasn't there. Right. So yeah. I, <laughs> well, that's what they do, camp. You yeah. go to camp. Go to camp. My parents sent me to two camps in one summer. <laughs> <laughs> so you wouldn't notice they weren't right. Around. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what 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 is some of your like? What are some of the advice you have for new grandmothers? What what is well, your approach to this, Mark? It's not an advice book because uh-huh. I am the last person, believe me, anybody wants to take advice from as a parent or even a grandparent. I, it's kind of a sixty minutes uh, research project uh-huh. on first of all, why do grandparents have this physical love for their grandchildren it's it's a full body it's a second uh, chance. ecstasy second, second chance. chance is part of it less responsibility in some ways Le- that's another one <laughs> seeing your baby have a baby uh-huh. and seeing that they do a good job is part of it 
Um, our, when we're parents, we're policemen. Mm-hmm. We have to whip you little kids yeah. into shape. You can't do this. Clean up your room. Eat your vegetables. Mm-hmm. And when you're a grandparent, your job, yeah. your whole job, is to say yes. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're great. They're, 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 I, my grandmother was very important to me. And grandparents she, are very important. And it's to say yes and just love. Period. That's it. And who else is going to love you that? Who else is going to think that you put your right foot shoe on your right foot? It's amazing. That you're a genius, right? <laughs> who else is going to tell you you're perfect? And every human being needs one person yeah. to say that to them or yeah. to feel that, to convey that. Uh, wow. I I didn't think when I started the book yeah. that it that there was a whole book. Right. about grandparents. And then I would talk to someone, they take me in a whole new direction. I yeah. kept going in new directions. Step-grandmothers, surrogate grandmothers. Oh, that's great. Grandfathers. There's a bio, bio neurobiology to grandparenting because hmm. when we hold our little babies, yeah. we are our brains change. Yeah. And we are infused with a hormone called oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And that makes you just feel good all over. Ooh, so yeah. you can get addicted to grandchildren. Exactly. <laughs> we are addicted to grandchildren. Do you know how many animals have grandmothers? How many? Only three. Is that true? Well, in the king in yeah. the animal kingdom, when you can no longer reproduce, you die. Right. So elephants, whales, and humans. We're the only three. Oh, I wonder and if you, they all feel the same. We do. That's true. Oh, really? watch. And the role in all three cases, the deliberate role, why we have grandmothers? Yeah. Babysitting. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> Just true. leave them with grandma. <laughs> yeah. And they're happy. They're happy babysitters. And you don't have to pay them. Well, and we don't say no. That's right. <laughs> well, look, I, I, it sounds great. It was great talking to you. I hope I did a good job with the interview. Did you I? did a great. I loved it. Good. I loved it. I, I think I learned some things. It was smart. I appreciate you coming and uh, you know, take care and enjoy your grandchildren. Thank you, Mark. All right, that was me and uh, Leslie Stahl. It was nice talking to her. All right, no music today. (laughs) Except for that. Take care of yourselves and other people around you. Boomer lives!